I hate that Zoom voice, but anyway, here we go. So welcome to this evening with Brad. We are going to talk about reconstructing, renovating, reimagining how we read scripture this evening. Um, so I don't probably need to introduce Brad to you because I imagine you're here because you know Brad. So I'm just going to kick off and let him go for it. So Brad, thanks to you. Good to see you, everybody. Um, I'm just going to adjust. There we go. Um, so welcome here. So this is a three-part series, and I did tease it last Sunday, but we'll expand on some of the things we shared about. And so uh, the big picture here is that uh, many of us have, have experienced great faith shifts in the last years or decades. And it means reimagining how we approach central things to our faith, including scripture, including prayer, and including community. And we could do many more, but I'm, that's the three that I want to address uh, bi-weekly over the next three sessions. And so, um, so when we talk about reimagining, or maybe we could say reinvigorating, in fact, a friend of mine phoned me this morning and he said, what we need is, is we construction. And so he was talking about, about how, how do we, um, you know, look forward. It's, it's, it's very unlikely that those of us who've made changes and moved on in our faith can go back. But also, um, a lot of that has involved dismantling and it's involved letting go. And um, probably the misuse of the term deconstruction, but there it is. It's a popular uh, phrase these days to describe something that's real and necessary, and um, but also at times perilous because uh, when when we begin re-examining our faith, what we believe, why we believe, um, you know, it if we just are like kites that cut our own string, um, the liberty involved in that is great until you hit a tree. Um, for others of us, we came out of backgrounds where there was toxicity, and and uh, and that we needed a detox, but we don't want to live in detox forever. We we maybe uh, even want to think about these three sessions as rehabilitation and um, not just our rehabilitation, but, you know, re rehabilitating the Bible, uh, rehabilitating prayer, rehabilitating what it is to be in a faith community and, and how to move um, from a place where trigger triggers are not like warning signs saying, keep out, but that, triggers are actually an invitation to go deeper and experience some healing and maybe even uh, unbury some treasure. And so, so there's a, there's an unveiling, there's a peeling back that we can do. And, and we want to begin that tonight with, with the scriptures. So I'll just, uh, I want to say a prayer about that. Uh, so father in heaven, we thank you for, uh, the scriptures, uh, despite our run-ins with them that were confusing or hurtful, and we'd love to see them in a fresh light so that it would make sense to us when David said that these are a delight or that we could read these same scriptures that Jesus pointed to on the road to Emmaus 
said, these are about me. And um, so would you help us this evening with that and uh, walk us through uh, the little minefield that that can be as a topic. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so I grew up in a in a church uh, that was very much about, you know, Bible-believing church, and we believed all the those modernist words, um, like inerrancy. And I do want to say they're modernist words. That, that, that's an invention of the 1800s that was made to somehow defend us against liberalism. And, and what we did is, uh, and I say we, I could, I would say my people of uh, the evangelical tribe, um, we constructed a defense of scripture that actually created uh, so many problems um, because, well, there are multiple becauses. And so maybe I want to start there. First of all, just say a little bit more, more about my story with the Bible. Um, when I was probably seven years old, I, I maybe even, yeah, let's say seven, I, I discovered the Bible and I fell in love with the Bible and I, I got, I, I just got it in my heart that I wanted a Bible. My dad had a Bible, my mom had a Bible, I want a Bible. So my dad's like, we'll buy you a Bible. And I'm like, no, I really shouldn't have a Bible until I've, I've memorized it. Like I want to be worthy of it somehow. So I decided, you know, I shouldn't have my own Bible till I memorize 30 verses. And my dad's like, no, you really don't have to. I'm like, no, I really do. <laughs> um, you know, by the time you get to 30 verses, when you're seven years old, you're really thankful for Jesus wept, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, Luke 13, three, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. That was a nice short one. Uh, the first one I memorized was Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And I thought about the little boy um, uh, Solomon making that same decision, seeking first the kingdom. So, um, you know, I would. there was this upside to it, that there was an authentic desire and hunger to, for scripture, but also, you know, you can hear it at a young age, a performance orientation. And, and uh, you know, making myself worthy, all of that stuff was, was connected, partly older child syndrome, and also the reward system you'd have in Sunday school for memorizing, or uh, speaking of reward systems, wow, I, you know, um, like when I was still eight, I, I managed to memorize all the books in the, that were in the Bible in order, using a song, and so that, that really made me prideful, and um, but it also made me good at sword drills. So you'd go, okay, we're going to put our Bibles in the air and then we're going to have a race to find, to find the passage first. And the person would say, Zephaniah 3.11. You're like, Zephaniah 3.11, charge. And then you, and so it was, I, I was always in a head-to-head -head race with Nancy McMillan and that was pretty intense. So that's my younger years with the Bible and appreciation for it and started reading through the entire Bible. Um, a number of times, uh, Living Bible, King James Bible, you name it, right? And then I went to Bible College. And so at Bible College, they really doubled down on this. And, and it was all about the inspiration, authority, infallibility, and inerrancy of Scripture. And, and it was like we were in this war to make sure we believed every word was true. And, and then you're like, well, okay. If Judas says it, is it still true? Well, no, but the Bible reports that he says it, so that's true. Like, okay, so, 
and but and especially if if the Bible says that God says, then it's for sure true, and you just have to accept it. My problem was I actually read the thing, and some of the things that God was reported to have commanded were ex explicitly uh, immoral, and and in fact things that Jesus, who I regarded as God, the incarnate word, forbade. And, uh, and, and you know, like some of them were really hideous, like what to do when you run into a city. So the one that really was a breaking point for me was uh, in Deuteronomy where, where there's a law that says when you approach a, a city and, and if there's, you know, you offer it peace. If they accept your offer of peace, enslave them all. That's like if they accept your terms of peace. If they don't, kill all the men and then just enslave the women and children. And if you see a woman you like, uh, you can have her for a month. And during that month, you cut off her fingernails, her toenails, her hair, and you take away the clothes of her people. And then you give them just like Jewish clothes or whatever. And then after a month, if you still want her, uh, like marry her. But then like, if you don't want her, just don't kill her, uh, you know, let, let her go. And so this, <laughs> this, was a, this was a big advance over like raping and pillaging everybody. And, and it's like, no, you gotta pick one and then you get to have her or not. And it's like, let's, so I'm thinking, well, that's, that's a lot better than Conan the Barbarian, but like, could the Abba, the Papa that Jesus revealed in the gospel, have issued that command. And, and that's when I just started contacting all my evangelical colleagues. I, a lot of them were Greek and, and Hebrew scholars. They were biblical studies, uh, PhDs and all of that. And, and I was in a big news group with them when we had in those days of news groups. And I'm like, can someone just be straight with me? Can you just tell me, could Jesus, who is the same yesterday and forever, and is indivisible from his father and the spirit have issued that command and all the waffling that came back. And I got more and more angry and, and, and uh, you know, I was almost done with the Bible then, but I had a sneaking suspicion that the problem wasn't the Bible. It was the way that we were trained to read it. Uh, for many of my friends who passed through kind of a deconstruction, they still assume those ways of reading, and then they just re reject the Bible. And this is not a new issue. Um, in the mm, second century, there was a heretic called Marcion. And Marcion, um, he really, he would read the Bible literally. And that's what I was taught at Bible College. You read it literally. Grammatical, literal, historical approach. Was, and so you read it and, and you accept what's in there as being accurate and true. And so Marcion was like that. And he read the Bible literally. And he saw what I saw. That if you read it in that way, that there is no way that many of the scriptures in the Bible, some even in the New Testament, line up with the God revealed in Jesus. So what do you do? Well, so what Marcion thought we needed to do is he, he said, clearly, uh, the creator God who is good is not the same as Yahweh, who's this tribal warrior God, who's quite vicious and volatile and violent. And um, you can see I'm still, I'm living in my Baptist days. I just pulled three V's out of the hat like that. And that's how we preach. So 
So um, Marcion, in his literalism, divided Old Testament, New Testament, and then he said, we've just got to get rid of the Old Testament and actually a lot of the New Testament, and he just took the scissors to it. So he thought the problem was the Bible, but the rest of the church are like, no, the, the problem's how you're reading it. <laughs> and, um, and, and he was one of these, the Bible clearly says guys, and I run into them all the time, um, but not only among my conservative evangelical brothers and sisters, I run into them among the ex-evangelicals who have rejected the Bible and rejected faith. Why? Because they still read it with modernist assumptions and with Marcion's assumptions and the kind of literalism that is actually an abuse of the Bible. And, and um, so before I was too quick to rush out and toss my Bible, I, I, I was... Uh, lucky enough to to just start running it by people from other faith streams. And of course, then um, uh, Archbishop Lazar became a mentor of mine. And that's now about 18 years ago. In one of our very first meetings, um, I was working through 1 Samuel 15, the same thing. The author says that the narrator says that God says to Samuel, Samuel will tell Saul that he needs to go kill the Amalekites, all of the Amalekites, men, women, children, infants, and all their animals too. Wipe them all out, actual genocide. Um, and why? Well, my, my friends would say, well, you know, they were very wicked and they were practicing this. No, no, what's the Bible say? The Bible says do it because of the sins of their great, 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 great grandparents. So now we're going to have a genocide because of our ancestors. Um, and so Saul goes off and he's going to do that and he starts killing everybody. But then like he's afraid, he thinks it won't be popular. So he spares the lives of the kings and he comes back and Samuel finds out and he's just in a rage. It's like he, God wants obedience. <laughs> it's like, wow. And, and, and he was supposed to show no mercy. So I'm telling Archbishop Lazar this. I'm like, how, how, can I, how can I accept this kind of text? So this is what we mean by the toxic text. Or, and and uh, Lazar's thing was like, well, what's the problem? I'm like, well, God's commanding genocide. He's like, no, he's not. I'm like, what do you mean he's not? It says right there. It's like, well, Samuel says that, that he's commanding genocide. But Samuel's a, a bigot who... <laughs> has not go, got over his own prejudice towards this other people group. And he's putting words in God's mouth. I'm like, what? You can't say that. And, and I'm like, it's not just Samuel. The narrator says it. This is God's word. And he goes, and that's when Lazar, you've, some of you have heard me say this, but Lazar goes, no. Jesus Christ is God's word. And every scripture that claims to be a revelation of God must bow to the living God when he came in the flesh. This changed everything for me. This meant because I trusted Jesus by this time. And in my trust of Jesus, I recognized something new now. That the scriptures that claim to reveal God must submit to, to Christ as the final word. And where they don't, we should cut them out. No, that's Marcion again. <laughs> where they don't, Archbishop Lazar says, where they don't, they're not a revelation of God, they're a revelation of us. 
And, and I'm like, so we don't get rid of First Samuel 15? Like, oh, no, we need First Samuel 15. Why? Because we're still doing it. We are still putting words in God's mouth to sponsor our prejudice. And, and what we need to do with a scripture like this is hold it up as a mirror to the human condition as a cautionary tale. And that we read it in the big in, in the whole of scripture, not as one isolated chapter, the whole of scripture where Christ comes and he says, no, God is not like that. Stop talking about him that way. And you're like, and, and I'm like, wow, that's, that's a new way to read. He's like, no, that's the ancient way to read. That's how the church corrected Marcion. And this is how you need to correct your literalist brothers and sisters. Uh, but first you better get the plank out of your own eye. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So, so it was a, the problem then is, is not these scriptures, but how we were reading them. So um, in the next um, uh, few minutes, I, I want to just share a, a couple of the ways that, that have really reconstructed my reading of scripture. Um, first, and, and I mentioned this on Sunday, uh, but that instead of taking these as, as individual passages or paragraphs or verses, and plucking it out of the final form, which uh, you know we would call the canon, um, you don't you don't take one page out of that whoosh, and then hold it up and go, God said this, and I believe it, and that settles it. You know, no, this we read this um, as a piece of it, it. It's a gathered text. It was many texts, but for Christians. It, it now has taken a final form as, an, as, as the um, epic drama of redemption that passes us through the history and the culture and the mistakes and the idiocy of the people of God and the prophets who come to correct them and how they get persecuted by the people of God. And then they go, they go out of exile, um, out of slavery, into a nation out of it, you know, you've got this, it's a, it's a story. And the story has a point and the story is heading somewhere. And so, so I don't now reject the book of judges because I don't like it. I, I'm like, if I'm going to take this book seriously, I see judges as an episode in this drama that climaxes in Christ. And that also, even within the text, there's a conversation happening between multiple voices. And those multiple voices are often arguing with each other because they're Jews. The Jews know how to debate scripture. They know how to bring their moral objections to scripture. The people within scripture who become most intimate with God are the ones who argue with him. And often, God is inciting the argument to bring them to a merciful conclusion. God's like, we've got to destroy the city. And, and one of the prophets is like, no, please don't. And then God says, okay, I won't. I was just hoping you'd, well, why would he do that? Well, this is why we study scriptures to, 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 to sort out how, how the, the big story works and then the little stories work within it. Now, I want to, um, I want to say a couple more things before we move on. It's like already actually 752. So, um, so one problem was this literalistic way of reading everything in isolation and just saying, God says, 
another problem that actually is the Bible. Like, what do you mean the Bible? Well, before we had a Bible that was collected, bound, translated, and available to everybody on your app, uh, as an app on your phone, um, it was scriptures. And they were read in a context and in a certain way. Now, while I'm really grateful to have a Bible, um, and there are upsides to Bibles, like uh, accessibility to more people, um, being able to read it in your own language, having the whole collection bound in one, you know, these, these are advantages. Printing, the printing press made an advantage. Here's the disadvantage though. What is my framework for reading a Bible? My framework is nothing more than the binding. And I'm just gonna what read it in order, and I'm and, and 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 how will I understand how the big story works? Well, in the in the early church before they had a Bible, I call it the the biblification of Scripture. Uh, before they had that, they had scriptures, and the scriptures were um, housed at the church, and they were read in the context of a community, and in the context of this community. They are telling a story during the worship service. So now the, and, and what is the story they're telling in every single worship service? In, well, in the early church, it was a liturgy or a pageant, an interactive script with the congregation that walked them through the story. Adam, well, creation, Adam, Eve, their turn. The, um, the, the, the arrival of Abraham and then the growth of a people who actually ultimately are led by Moses out of Egypt, uh, who establish a homeland and, and, and uh, centered around a temple ultimately with, well, not ultimately, penultimately, uh, with day and, and they've got this King David and then you've got this hymnology that comes out of that. And then just a disaster after disaster after disaster leads them into exile and then finally home again, but not really because they are uh, under Rome's rule. And in the midst of that disenfranchisement, the Messiah they've been waiting for shows up and he reveals God to them as perfect love, as compassion, as, as um, you know, uh, uh, empathetic. And, and he's a healer and all, he's a teacher, all of that. Stuff. And, then and, and then ultimately the, his death, resurrection, ascension, and, and, uh, and then the kingdom of God released in this world through the spirit. So that's the story. We took, we, they would tell the story every week. That story, the gospel, was the framework for their scriptures, not just leather binding, but to say every scripture we take gets plugged into the story somewhere and somehow. And so you would never read the Bible, the scriptures, sorry, you'd never read the scriptures out of context of a community telling the, the story of the gospel. So the gospel itself is like the closet organizer into which you would put all of the scriptures. And so you would, you would have psalm readings, prophetic readings, Epistle readings, gospel readings, all leading up to the climax where, where uh, 
Christ is revealed as the lamb slain and risen and, and uh, as savior of the world. And well, what this does for me then is, is now instead of just bumbling through uh, scripture, thinking how to, you know, wondering how it fits, I'm like, I can ask myself, how does this fit in the gospel? How do I read this as part of the gospel? And so what an early church father named Origen said is when, when you remove the veil from your eyes and you see that the whole thing is prefiguring Jesus, then you will um, understand the entire Bible as New Testament because the whole thing is, uh, is anticipating the one who's to come um, in at least three ways. So every story of victory, even dubious victory, where they did bad things, prefigures the much greater victory of Christ in some way. So, um, so that when Christ is revealed, it's like, oh, we thought victory was like our tribe beating their tribe and killing people and taking land. Now we've discovered the true victory is over hatred and over death and over destruction itself. And in fact, um, and that Christ has won that victory without killing anybody. And, and he did it in such an ironic way that his victory actually looks like a cross. So, so then the, the church would just start saying, where, how do the scriptures point to this? Because Jesus said they do. Second, uh, every, every time they, people were not victorious, they were afflicted and oppressed and crushed and besieged. That too was, was prefigured the much greater affliction of Christ bearing the sins and sorrows of all history and all people on himself and swallowing them up in love. But it was... Uh, there was no greater affliction. And so in Christ, we see the God who bears our wounds. And, and, and then you go back and go, oh, yeah, he was there when Israel was groaning in Egypt and he comes down. That's, that, was, that was a trailer for this. Um, oh, the, when David is on the run, he's hiding in caves and he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, that was like a trailer for the much greater uh, sufferings of Christ in the crucifixion. So you got victories and sufferings, and then I'll add a third one. Every time you have a betrayal, every time you have injustice, and my goodness, there's a lot of injustice in the in the Bible. And instead of seeing that as, oh, see, God is bad, and, and we knew it. <laughs> uh, no, it's like uh, every time the people of God experience injustice or commit one, it is prefiguring the betrayal of Jesus and the much greater injustice of a world that commits deicide and murders God. And, and that look who's complicit. The state is complicit. The church is complicit or the temple establishment. The crowds are complicit. Man, we're kind of all complicit, aren't we? And then, um, so, so there you go. Uh, in, I just start seeing this all over the Bible. And so if, I, if I'm reading scripture, if I'm reading scripture, that's that's what I'm looking for, how it points to Jesus, because on the Emmaus Road, he said, that's how we're to read it as Christians. Now, you can read it a different way. I'm just saying, as Christians, the point of, of the book is, is a testimony to Christ.
Now I'll just, uh, let's see, I'll say one more thing before we open it up for some questions. Um, uh, but, you know, so to review so far, to understand the Bible as an epic narrative heading somewhere, and two, that every part of that book is prefiguring what's coming in Christ as the climax, as the greatest piece of literature in history. Um, but it's not just literature to be read and studied. Um, I get I I started getting a lot more out of the scriptures um, when when in that context of the gospel I began praying them, and uh, in fact, I, someone was lamenting something on on Twitter the other day, and and Brian's on just said, you know, have you tried praying the psalm? And here's the deal with the Psalms. You've got like um, 150, depending on your Bible. Mine has 151. Um, you've got 150 Psalms that were a collection of prayers given to God's people collectively. And so as a group, they could pray these prayers um, and, and they were like honest gut checks about what's in our heart. And that's why, I don't know, was it 40% of them are laments, complaints to God. Imagine that. If there's such a thing as inspiration, the spirit is inspiring David to complain to God in prayer so that all, all the, uh, the junk in our hearts would come to the surface. And so... There's so much in us today that just want, still wants to avoid conflict and play nice. And it's like God's confidants were the ones who got in God's face with this stuff and weren't afraid to pray their angry prayers, weren't afraid to pray their frustrations out, weren't afraid even to despair, as long as they did it with God as part of the big picture and often together. And so, for example, um, how I got into this is I, um, I'm a reader at the monastery, so that means I'm assigned readings when, when I'm at church. And there's these six psalms that we read during the matin service every single Sunday, and and some of them are like really triumphalistic. And you're like, yeah, right. So rah, 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 and then we lose again. And then some of them are just really angry. Lord, like smash, smash their babies on a stone. And then some of them are... are lament and, and despairing and it's like how long oh lord it's like have you forgotten me forever and i'm reading this and i'm like well that's is is that new covenant like shouldn't we be living in the power of the resurrection now and it's like um walter brudeman said look at you uh, think about somebody in this world for whom these are authentic prayers think about Adam locked out of the garden. Oh, now we're back into the story. I can pray this as, as Adam and Eve who've been banned from paradise and now are living the human condition in a pretty screwed up world and still are. And then think about the women, the myrrh-bearing women at the tomb and the tomb is sealed and the disciples are off hiding in a locked room and the, the women are crying and they're like, what have they done? You know, And uh, and that these psalms come out. And so I'm, as I'm praying in the persona of Adam, the persona of the myrrh-bearing women, suddenly I'm also praying in the persona of the persecuted church in Myanmar. And uh, uh, 
the black church in America and the indigenous people who, who are going through like such grief this week that you can read about in lamentation. And I'm, I'm praying this and then wait a minute, my own anger comes up, my own frustration comes up, my own victory comes up, my own joy comes up. And I'm like, oh, as I pray these in solidarity with those in the story and those in my world, um, suddenly it's alive to me and I'm doing fairly deep level it's a it's a sort of therapy so um so in terms of in terms of rehabilitating reconstructing scripture um uh, that's just some of some of my history with it that when i started seeing it as the big story i started seeing it as pointing to jesus and i started praying it as as uh, as the authentic cries of people in this world um uh, suddenly scripture got much more interesting to me. And I'll talk a little bit more when, about that in two weeks when we go into prayer. Um, but uh, for now, let's, let's open up for questions and comments. And... and I need to make sure I can hear you guys now. Hang on. Select a speaker built in. How's that? Um, hearing anything yet? Can you talk to me for a second? Hi. Oops. Talking. So at this point, if you want to flip over to gallery view so you can see everybody, and then you'll see somebody leaning forward to uh, click there, unmute. And if you have anything that you want to ask, anything you want to comment on, then do just unmute, um, say your piece, and then Brad will respond. Wow, Brad, that was a lot. I scribbled. Right. I um I filled a lot of little note cards with stuff, which I'm going to go back to and go. Right, what was that? Was that went fast. So if you want to, anything else you want to say, just feel free. That was uh that was great. Thank you. So over to anybody else who's got anything. Brad, do you have any contact with Nancy McMillan anymore? You know, my wife and I bumped into her about. 20 years ago, Nancy McMillan, down in Vancouver. Yeah, she's hardcore. <laughs> she's still like a Bible thumper. It was very funny. She, I, first thing I saw her, I saw her, she's witnessing on the street. I'm like, oh, geez. Uh, but we had a nice reconnect, and she's just a very lovely woman. So um, I have an exercise for you all to try sometime while you're thinking of your question. Um, you know how I said the whole thing fits into a big story? Here's a way you can practice that. So what we're doing is we want to reframe script, scripture into the gospel. That's the framework of scripture, the gospel. So you can boil down the gospel to the parable of the prodigal son, sons. You've got the older brother, the younger brother, the loving father. You've got the religiosity of striving in the fields for the one guy and, and the, the pain of going through a hedonistic crash in, with the pig pen with the other guy. Now, let's say that's the gospel in a nutshell. I wonder if you could take any scripture in the Bible and say, where would that scripture fit into the parable? See, what I'm doing is I'm saying all scripture fits in the into the framework of the gospel story and 
and and the parable of the prodigal son is a is Jesus summary of the gospel. So you could like, wow, um, I, I bet you could do it. Maybe you couldn't always do it, but it's an exercise to try. And it's just about re, you know, getting us to rethink. Don't read the Bible outside of the framework of, of the gospel, or you're not reading it as scripture. Um, so, yeah. By the way, all this will be in my book. You can order it now from Lando. Uh, it'll be out in July. No, no, not, we're not doing Amazon. We're going to get it from Lando. Okay, Cheryl, go ahead. You got a question? Yes, I just wanted to say that I really appreciated uh, what you had to say about this because um, I'm a, <laughs> a struggling Calvinist who's um, recently been exposed to... Uh, some of your work and that of Paul Young and Baxter Kruger. And um, I was reading uh, Psalm 90 the other day. And it's going on about wrath, 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 wrath. And then it ends with may the beauty of our God rest upon us. And I'm like, how does that even compute those two things together? And how does that even fit with this picture of the Trinity and the fellowship and the love that's in there? And yet, when I'm reading through some of those Psalms and some of those passages in the Old Testament, it's exactly this God that I'm afraid is going to, I'm never sure if he's going to smack me or bless me. Yeah. And, and putting the two together has been really difficult, and I haven't known what to do with that. Yeah. You, you, so here would be an example where I would say, you are not, it, it are, would, you, would you identify as a Christian? Yes. I mean, okay. So, because that makes a difference. So, as a Christian, you're not allowed to read Psalm 90 without your your rabbi Jesus as your sponsor. <laughs> you're not <laughs> welcome to the Psalms without him, and you must not read Psalm 90 without reference to the punchline which is the death and resurrection of Jesus. See, so what I'm doing there is I'm reframing the Bible to say, say Psalm 90 is, is pointing to the cross. And Jesus is the word of God, not Psalm 90. Mm. And so Jesus, when we say Jesus is the word of God, that means he gets the final word on who God is and how God works. And that final word happens on the cross when the wrath shows up through us. Right. And Jesus responds with forgiveness. And so wrath is swallowed up in him. And so now then in the early church, they'd say, okay, but what about this wrath thing? It's like, well, wrath, even before the New Testament, by the time you're in the prophets, wrath has already become, um, you, know, you know, literally wrath means violent anger. And violent meaning doing harm. So, so in the early church, they'd say, did Jesus reveal himself and as a father as the one who's who is so violently angry at sin he will harm you it's like i don't know what does the cross show us about that keep asking that right john 10 10 it is the thief who steals kills and destroys i have come and i'm god by the way <laughs> that you would have life and have it more abundantly so um 
so so the the enemy is the death dealer and god's the life giver and that's why mm -hmm. jews even before the time of christ began to read the word wrath as a synonym for satan what <laughs> and so to me, discovering that stuff is so joyful, right? I'm like, why would I throw my Bible out when I'm finding this stuff? And that wrath, even the wrath of God is sort of a met, um, how do you fit Psalm 90 into the gospel, into what do you call it, um, the, the prodigal son story? Oh, wrath is the consequences of the prodigal turning away. Well, where is the wrath? The pig, it's the pig pen. Oh, that's the wrath. But God didn't send him to the pig pen. Exactly. <laughs> and yet he experiences the consequences of his turning. And now we now we can go back into the Old Testament and say, oh, we don't have to get rid of Psalm 90. We have to ask how it fits in the big story. I'm so glad you asked that question. It's such a good example. Um, I wonder also what would happen if you prayed Psalm 90. What would that be interesting? <laughs> uh, maybe I'll try that. <laughs> Thank you. But you said it ends with beauty, right? Well, yeah, it was just, it was very, it was actually a friend of mine who challenged me to go back and read it. And I was, as I'm reading through it, I'm going, how, I, I just, you, you know, what you described in the beginning about how we've been trained to read scripture. Um, one of the things that I've been kind of coming to the conclusion is that, um, the way we read scripture is almost a form of idolatry oh, yeah. where, where, where we're worshiping the Bible, but we're not worshiping the living word. Yeah. And we're, 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 we're putting them, we're pitting them against each other. Yeah. Yeah. And so even Jesus will come along. He, 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 he will, it can sound like he's pitted against scripture, right? You said, you heard it said, but I'm telling you, well, what he's doing there, he's not, he's not, erasing the old testament he's showing us how to interpret it and get to its heart mm -hmm. and that interests me a lot if if christ will give us the spirit to show us the heart of his father in, in these scriptures i that that's interesting to me but the idolatry you're talking is about is very real in fact in the fourth century saint john cassian said this he said if you literalize the wrath of god yeah, that's what we were taught to do, right? Literalize yeah. it. He said, you will create an idol and commit a monstrous blasphemy. I mean, this is guy, this guy's a saint in the church, and he's saying that literalism stuff will kill you. In yeah. fact, Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 3. If you read this according to the letter, the whole thing is just condemnation. But if you read it with unveiled eyes, beholding how it points to Jesus... It will be a ministry of reconciliation. The whole thing, right back to Genesis. So, right. Thank you. Good question. Other other thoughts, input, questions, insights, epiphanies? Uh, I've got a question for you. Dave? Yeah. Um, so I come from like a pretty traditional background with like inerrancy and saying like all the scriptures, God breathed was a way to defend that. Um, but like as Peter says, you know, God let his children tell the story. That resonates with me a lot more. But what would you say, in your opinion, like gives the Bible authority, or if you think the Bible has authority, if it's not perfect and inerrant, because that's the way I had always thought of it? Yeah, good question, Dave. I mean, the first thing I want to say is that inerrancy is not traditional or conservative. 
yeah. <laughs> right? It's, it's yeah. I know exactly what you mean. Um, but but that I would pull that out and just say, by by the way, uh, you have not conserved the ancient way of reading the scriptures passed down by those who gathered them. <laughs> and so we need to have a talk about what the tradition actually is. Because if we think evangelicalism, like I love evangelicals, I'm, um, but if we think that's the tradition and the, and the, the 19th century way of reading the Bible as inerrant is somehow conservative, that, that's kind of a misnomer that is due for some pushback, I think. Um, but then what, so what gives the Bible authority? What does the Bible have authority? Well, um, maybe we could use authority. Let's use it as a, in a, as an adjective and say, the Bible is an authoritative witness to Jesus Christ. In other words, to the degree that it points to him. Uh, it, it, it is, it is an authoritative witness. So too, you can have authority as a witness. Nature can have authority as a witness. The prophets can have authority as a witness. Um, what gives them that authority? The one to whom we're pointing. And then, and, and, it, and so when we're not pointing to that, we're not reading the Bible as scripture and it has no authority in that sense. So, for, for, I mean, we, we might like to say it has authority, but for example, you know, if, if the Bible says you can't eat um, shellfish and you go eat shellfish, can you really say those verses have authority for you? <laughs> you know, it, it, it's only authority. So there's a subjective element of authority. Does it have, when does it have authority over me? When am I because I don't believe I should just stand over the scriptures with a scalpel and dissect them. That's me having authority over it. Yeah. And literalism often does that. But if I go, okay, at what point do these scriptures have authority over me now, um, wherever they call me to Christ? Right. If I, if I respond to that call, I'm showing that I believe in their authority. Um, and this is a very strange thing then. You, you get a lot of very, uh, let's say, uh, uh, very conservative believers who would say the Bible has absolute final authority. But then I just start quoting the Sermon on the Mount and the, the same people tell me I'm naive. <laughs> like, why am I naive? Well, this nonviolent stuff, turn the other cheek. Um, that's that's naive. I'm like, I, I didn't say, I just quoted Jesus to you. I thought this was inerrant. So you can start to see the thing um, crumble when we're like, so authority isn't just something in the book that I say about it. Authority is when the book speaks to me and like, what am I going to do with this? Mm-hmm. But um, uh, I, I go ahead and I eat shellfish. But what I try to do is undergo those scriptures that that, that where, where Jesus says, look, at, you got to love your enemies. Oh, that's, that's, oh, a, that's, harder that's a harder one. Yeah, thank you. That's helpful. Yeah, thank you. That's helpful. Hello. Hey. Hey. Chris DeWitt from Yorba Linda, California. I'm getting an echo. I'm getting an echo. Is it my fault? I don't know. I don't know. Oh, I know. Well, Chris, go well, ahead. Chris, go ahead. Well, I think I'm getting an echo because I'm I'm zooming you off my uh, Apple TV here. So that could be. Can you? Yeah. Is it okay? 
uh, it's okay. Uh, it's okay. Yeah, I'll <laughs> let me let me do something, and I'll I'll be back. Okay. Okay. Um, in the meantime, there's a question here. It says, do you think we're meant to struggle with scripture to arrive at this higher truth, similar to the reason Jesus spoke in parables, or have we just forgotten the tradition of the early church? That is the tradition of the early church to struggle, um, and not just the early church. It's the tradition of 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 all the great prophets and rabbis. They are struggling with God. Um, they, you know, that's. They, they are struggling with scriptures. Um, you've got, you've got a prophet. Is it, let's see, Jeremiah. He's like, wait a minute. The prophecy was that the exile is supposed to end after seven years. Time's up. What's going on? You know, like, and so, so they're wrestling with these scriptures. There is a, I would say that there's an element of fundamentalism that says you must not question this text. And what I see in the scriptures is not only an invitation to wrestle, but a, a, a call to be faithful, including by bringing um, your God-given morality to the text and saying, but but if I take this literally, it's that's immoral. And it's like, I'm so glad you've mentioned it, you know? <laughs> so, um, but it will help us uh, to overcome in this struggle if we understand how the early church read these things. And so um, where, where they do for them, there is a literal sense in which, okay, some of these events really happened and that the author who wrote these books um, uh, meant something when he said this, but that's just the literal sense. Then the moral sense is what is it? how is this scripture meant to form me into a Christ-like person? And then there's the spiritual sense with how does this scripture point to Jesus? So you've actually got layers going on there and it's like, but that's hard. Yeah. This is sacred scripture. We're talking about, it's not toilet reading <laughs> and, and um, no good Jew ever read scripture without a rabbi helping. So I'm, I, I'm, I make sure I'm, I'm getting help and I'm in community and I'm asking these hard questions and, and um, you know, wi willing, like what would you, how much effort would you put into finding gold if you knew it was buried somewhere on my street? I mean, you, you, uh, we, we go to effort to find the gold. Hey, Chris, did it work now? I, have a, I think I, so. How's that? Okay, go ahead. Yeah, I uh, thank you, Sarah, for that uh, little tip. I think I was mirroring it off the TV. Um, well, I guess the question here for me is that um, in this process of deconstruction and everything, uh, I begin to start using the term resonate. Uh, things begin to resonate with me. I, I, I don't want to use that as a term that uh, replaces faith. But it seems to me that um, as I began this journey, things began to make sense. And the difficulty of coming out of the church for me has always been, you know, I need to package this up. I need to be able to defend it. I need to be able to, uh, you know, send people their way, understanding uh, why I've made this move. And as I've gone further into it, I've felt less uh, desire or need to do that. 
because uh, this thing just keeps breaking down and, and messing things up. And I mean, it, it really is a, it, it's just a nightmare at times, uh, trying to figure out how I'm going to put all this together so it makes sense. But I do know that one thing, uh, and I guess I would ask you, Brad, on this, is that, um, is the term resonating in me? I mean, because when I look at the Bible, uh, as you've described it tonight, it seems to me that it's kind of a pick and choose area. You know, this is a this is a parable. This is a story. This is good to know. But but now it points to Jesus. You know, it, it all kind of this is the avenue, the gateway for me to find out who Jesus is. And that's the Bible, I guess. But but is is resonating an OK thing because it's comfortable, it's better. Uh, um, you know, I'm not into hell. I'm, 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 I'm looking at this redemption that Christ gave us as a worldwide thing. I'm looking at things that are even hard to say. I mean, it's, it's hard to say that, uh, that he's redeemed the earth. It's hard, to, you know, you have to subscribe to something. You have to believe there's a plumb bob hanging in the universe. It's the absolute truth. I don't even know if I'm asking a question here. I'm just, I'm rambling, but, uh, well, let me, anyway, let me respond anyway. Do something, do yeah. something here, will you? Yeah. So I, I do like the word resonance. I would just say that the whole, that, that here's how that can go well or how it can go poorly. How, well, how it goes poorly is if the resonance is strictly with something in me that feels good or comfortable. Right. <laughs> um, so, so, um, but it's not, yeah. So you can imagine how that could be just right. I'm going to read this in a way that makes me feel good. Um, but, uh, I think there's a, something powerful to be had. If we said, do we see the resonance in this with, with the good news of Jesus? So, so now again, you're letting the incarnation be, um, the, the sounding board rather than you. And to the degree that you are in alignment with the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ, then, then uh, the resonance with the gospel will resonate with you as well. And, um, and so I, I think that would be your quality control on that. So, uh, you know, people will say, well, you're just, you're just cherry picking scripture. It's like, I, 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 I'm absolutely not. <laughs> I'm, what I'm doing is I'm, I am reading, reading it as best I can, the Emmaus way, which is how does this point to the good news of Jesus, his death and resurrection, and his mission to restore all things. And so then when I see that happening, uh, I, 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 I really relate to the resonance you're describing, for sure. Yeah. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. And hey, thank you for doing this. Uh, uh, we love it here in California, <laughs> mm -hmm. reaching up into Canada or wherever you guys are. Yeah, welcome. Thank you. Kevin and Laura Lee. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Brad. Um, my question was, um, I get the idea of that reading the scripture through the life of Jesus and the cross, and I understand that... Um, I guess I, the part I'm having it that I need clarification on is I get that for the Old Testament, right? I can see that 
you know, these guys didn't have a full understanding of Christ. They didn't know what was coming. And so they were writing and describing things without the full information. Yep. And then you come across the Apostle Paul, and he's written lots of instructions and things and things to Timothy and other church leaders that maybe we might not agree with us, right? And so, but he, you know, met Jesus on the road, right? And he had an encounter with him, but then he may write things uh, in the New Testament that don't maybe add up to what I first of these eyes. How does that fit into that? Again, for the Old Testament, but I'm having a hard time understanding when something like Paul would yep. say things now that we may find offensive or whatever. Yeah. Well, yeah, a few things to say about that. So um, one is one is that Paul isn't Jesus, you know, so everything he says needs to bow to the living God who came in the flesh. His revelation is not superior to Jesus just because he lived after him. So that's one thing to think yeah. about. A second well, thing. Yeah, a few things to um, Can we mute that now? Because the echo is quite bad. So, um, uh, the other thing is, is to understand that epistles are a certain form of genre. We know to be careful with genres like poetry that you don't literalize the poetry, right? The trees don't literally have hands that clap. But we're reading something. Sarah, I'm still getting a big echo from somewhere. Could be. Well, I'll just carry on. Um, and so I, I've included a whole chapter or maybe two in my in my book about this because it's it's epistolary that means from the epistles epistolary rhetoric is a form of persuasive speech that also it requires some skills at interpreting here was the problem we thought oh we're in the epistles now we're out of all that poetry and symbolism stuff we could just read Paul straightforwardly as what we called didactic teaching. But he's not just doing straightforward teaching. These are all sermons. And, and when, we, when we give a sermon, we are trying to be, use every tool in the book to be persuasive. And the, luckily for us, we have the textbooks that students were using in the first century in how to do rhetoric and how it worked to persuade people. And so I'll give you one example of how rhetoric worked in the first century. And everyone Paul is hearing through his books, which weren't really letters, they're more, they're actually written sermons to be preached. They, they know the rules he's using. So here's one that's really tough. Um, when you want to make someone more suggestible to the truth, you need to load it with emotions. And in fact, if you put contrary 
emotions back to back. It throws them off balance emotionally a little bit so that the truth can get past their defenses into their hearts and actually change their lives. So the, the motive is good. We want, to, we want to not just give information when we preach. We want to get past rationalism into people's hearts and even motivate a new way of living. Well, that's good. It can also sound very manipulative. So in Paul's epistles, he's doing this all the time, and it will include these contrary emotions, like, for example, um, threats and comfort back to back. Or he will use um, uh, shaming and then flattery back to back. And so here's what we would do is, is, as an evangelical, I would do this. I would say, well, I'm going to take the shame out of context and go, look at there's the shame and we'll use the shame. And, and we don't and, and we make a theology out of his threats. Then the ex-evangelicals come along and they go, look at Paul's a, Paul's a jerk. See what he said here? And so both are doing the same thing. They've, they've taken the one emotional thing, split it from the other one, and now they've literalized and totalized and doctrinized it. You're like, oh, this is a disaster. I hate Paul. <laughs> and it's like, well, wait a minute. If we could, if we could learn how he preaches it totally makes sense. And so I'm, I'm hoping to help people with that. But it would be like this. Um, it'd be like this. The, some, the Thessalonians are really tempted to go back to paganism because that's where all their business dealings were down at the temple, all their social relationships were down at the temple, and now they're marginalized people and they're in financial trouble and they're in intense pressure. And they're like, maybe I should just go back. Maybe I should give up Christ. That would be easier. So Paul hears this. He writes them. And he's like, are you kidding me? That's a sinking ship. It's on fire. It's a Titanic. That's going to like completely be destroyed. Why would you get on that ship? Oh, but we know better of you. In fact, I brag about you all the time. You've got friends in other cities who know you're faithful and that you won't give up, will you? You know, so there you've got the, he's got the wrathy stuff and the comfort stuff back to back. And, but his motive, his, like, it's not just empty rhetoric. There is destruction if we follow certain paths. And he's not, he's not afraid to, to, to get pretty intense about it. But then if you stand back and look at the big picture, it's like, what is this a sermon about? It's a sermon encouraging people who are on the verge of giving up because they're under such pressure. And he doesn't mind if part of the sermon, like think of nowadays, right? When part of the sermon's a story, part of the sermon is funny, part of the sermon, he kind of raises his voice. Part of the, and, and so if we can remember Paul is preaching, then, then and that even then he's still subject to the, the final word, who is Jesus Christ. And that Paul knew this word. And that the final word of this word is good news. And it is actually Paul who gives us the most universalist text in the Bible, you know. So that would be, that, that's my short answer to a Paul thing. It helps if you love him first. Like um, Lucy Pepia is a scholar. She's a feminist. And she just said, 
got a lot of people who hate Paul because they think he's anti-women. He's like, if you would love Paul first, you know what he's up to. And he's cutting edge feminism. I'm like, what, really? And he goes, well, that's how I see it. But that's because I gave him the benefit of the doubt first. So, um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's after 8.30. Um, I know I have a couple more questions if you're okay with those, Brad. But if Okay, let's, uh, let's do a couple more and then... More? Okay. okay. Uh, so Andrew, go for it. Hi, Brad. Um, so I will, uh, I could, it could go rather deep, but I guess I'll, uh, I'll try to make it short, which you're not probably going to like. But um, if, if, it, if the Bible is all pointing to Jesus and Christ, then to me, it seems like, well, okay, then there's going to be elements that make up Christ. And of those element, the elements that make up Christ, there's gonna be a hierarchy. So what do you think in your opinion or interpretation is kind of at the hierarchy of Christ? Cause I am at a point where I kind of see it as the idea of the, uh, the, the, bearing, the bearing your suffering and picking up your cross and, and, and willingly to walk into um, constant death and re-resurrection to uh to um what would you say to uh kind of get to the highest order that you could be that maybe god made you to be yeah i mean you say, uh you sound like someone i know <laughs> um i yeah i feel like like that's kind of right that that christ himself and then the new testament has a way of unveiling um I don't, I know people hate the word hierarchy, but let, let's use that. It's like there, there, there's a hierarchy of values and, and maybe even a hierarchy of revelation and that the apex of that revelation is the image of a cross, which ironically now in world history is the primary image we have for God. Isn't that amazing? Like just statistically speaking, the cross is the number one image of God for the most people for the most time. That's just amazing to me. So then we have to ask, and, and that's why Paul, Paul has this in his hierarchy, right? I preach Christ and him crucified. I glory in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ through which the world is crucified to me and I to the world. Um, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live yet not I, but Christ. Lived. And he just goes on and on about the cross which for him isn't just crucifixion. Cross is his symbol for God revealed in Jesus. So it, it's not the wood, it's not the torture instrument, it's not even the, just the death. It's the cross is a picture of Jesus' revelation. And the revelation is that God is love. God is self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. And then like what you were saying is, uh, and he has called us to pick up that cross. What is that cross that we to pick up? The, this hierarchy of values, self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. To enter, to pick up that cross is to become human. And um, so I, I resonate with the way you, you phrased it because you're into the part about the invitation. This is a picture of, uh, of the apex of what it is to be truly human, like radical empathy. 
that leads us to become good people who create just societies after the pattern of the kingdom of God, which so oddly is, is cruciform, cross-shaped. Yeah. But if you just think of that as self-giving love is a good summary of that too, you know, and, and that's, yeah. Yeah, I just, well, actually, just as you spoke quickly, I thought that's interesting because it kind of, it blends the individual and community together. Individually, we're meant to pick up our own cross and our own suffering, but we're not meant to just do that throughout life by ourselves. We're meant to yeah. do it in context with community. And um, I think that that's, yeah. And like, and that's the thing, like with the cross too, it's not just, it's not just one thing. And especially like that, you know, modern you know, that idea of deconstruction is, is really popular to some people, but they leave it there. And it's like, there's, there's deconstruction, but you need, you want to create something out of that. Cause they're it, getting rid of everything is just wasteful. Take the good from the things that remain there, get rid of what you don't need anymore and build something bigger. I think is, is a, is a nice, view of it. I just wanted to get your thoughts. So I, yeah, I no, I like that. I like that. And, and also I, maybe I won't be, have the capacity to be the builder all the time, but what I can do is I can watch for what's emerging from the ashes because there is beauty emerging from the ashes. It's not just like, it, it's not just this nihilism that's uh, empty. All right. La who's got the last question? Uh, the last question is from Susan. It was on the chat. Um, it says, how, how would you address the layers of reading of scripture, literal, metaphor, etc.? How would I address the layers? Yeah. Yeah. I had slipped that in earlier. So I did literal, moral, spiritual, but those mean something specific to me. So literal doesn't mean you take it all literally. Literal means you begin your reading by asking, what does the author seem to intend? But that's just the orange peel, because <laughs> there's way more going on than what the author intended. But it's important, right? There's a lot of nutrients in that orange peel. So I'll, I'll use an example. In the book of Jonah, the author of Jonah is wanting to bring a, a fresh revelation that God's heart is not just for this one tribe. It's for the world. That's the author's intent. And it's shocking because he actually is calling them to love Ninevites, which would be like, the, we, we, well, which is the foreign empire that destroys them. It's like saying, you know, go, go tell good news to the Nazis or something. It was like that for them. And then so the, the, the literal layer, the first layer, author's intent, second layer, the moral layer, it's when Paul says, all scriptures God breathed is profitable for these things. Um, uh, reproof, correction, instruction that the, uh, I'm rusty on this verse. It was one of my first 30 though, that the, that the man or woman of God would be thoroughly furnished for, in, for righteousness. In other words, the moral sense is not just moralisms and rules to follow. It is, how will this scripture form me and transform me into becoming that cruciform person, the Christ-like person of self-giving love? If I can't figure that out, then careful. You know, if it's, if it's actually, if my re way of reading it would lead you away from cruciformity, then I'm reading it wrong or I just need to go find a rabbi or something. Um, and then, uh, but that's the, the moral reading is about 
Christ-like transformation from the inside out as I read and pray these scriptures. And then finally, what I call the spiritual reading, others call it the typological reading, the gospel reading, and that is um, you're not done reading until you've sorted out how any given text is finally fulfilled in Christ. And that fulfillment can be corrective. It's like, don't be this kind of king. Be this kind of king whose throne is a cross. Or it could be very positive. It, it, it's, it's like, wow, Genesis 3.15 already saw. The author could not have seen it. But, but the text foresees that, that Christ, the, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's head. Well, what did that even mean to them? I don't know, but I know what it means as a Christian. And that is the prince of this world has been driven out by the one who hung on a cross. So uh, who rose from the dead, conquered the grave, you know. So so that's the, that. now there's more layers if you want to do it, but that, that's, that's a really good, the, the ancient threefold literal, moral, spiritual uh, layering. That's great. Cool. All right. Well, thank you, Brad. Thanks. Uh, we'll be back here in two weeks. Do this all again. Talk about prayer. We're good. Um, Some of you gave up on prayer, like me. How does it come back? How do you? Well, well we'll talk about that. No, no. Cool. All right. Well, thanks very much, everybody, and good night. We'll see you soon. All right. Ciao.